and one of the phrases in there is, I wrote it down, are, my chains are gone, I've been set free. And I just remember just praying that for Hannah. I just, that's it. She just needs to be set free. And I need to be set free. And our family needs to be set free from this. And during the course of that walk, it's just interesting, but, but it's God. That song came on three different times. And by the end of that walk, I, I could almost audibly hear God say, I'm going to set her free. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I am here with Katie and Lindy, and we are your podcast hosts. Today, we are bringing you a really unique story from a mom and a daughter. So this is Hannah and Celeste from Tupelo, Mississippi. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Last week, we're coming off of Janie Giffen's story, who spoke about being on her knees for her children and how God would answer her prayers regarding each one of her children individually. And let me tell you, this is a great follow-up because Celeste talks just specifically about just falling on her knees and praying for Hannah. As you said, it's a very unique perspective because you're going to hear a story from both sides, from Celeste's vantage point and Hannah's vantage point. So it's a little bit longer than our regular story. So maybe you go on a really long walk or break it up and go on two walks to listen to this story. But it's definitely one that you just don't want to miss. I'm excited for you to hear it. Yes, and this story is so powerful because Hannah, the daughter with the addiction, starts off in the story that you're about to hear. But then also you're going to get Celeste as the mom and in her perspective. And so we actually recorded Celeste's story earlier. And we thought, man, if they could record together, it would be even better. And so that's what you're about to hear. But for our Patreon members today, we're actually dropping Celeste's first recording of her story and talking about Hannah's addiction and how she dealt with it as a mom. And so you're going to get that on Patreon today. If you're not a member, just scroll down in the show notes and click on join Patreon, or you can visit our website at storytellerslive.org. Here are Hannah and Celeste. My name is Hannah. I am a person in long-term recovery. So I am going to kind of walk through what that looks like for me and then kind of how that affected my relationship with my mom and her journey as well. But um, just a back, little facts before I jump into everything. I got sober October 3rd, 2018. So it came up on four years. Um, I got sober at age 19. Um, it was a lot. You know, I don't think, you know, there I've, I've learned I'm not the only one and I thought it was. So that's not true. But that is a little bit of backstory and kind of how that progressed very quickly for me, but I am going to kind of tell you a little bit about kind of what it was like, what happened, and then what it's like now. And I'm really going to put a heavy emphasis on my relationship with God and how that changed throughout this journey. But starting off, I'll tell you a little bit about my childhood. It's kind of weird to do that in front of my mom because she <laughs> is like that person that was my childhood, I guess. But um, I did have a very normal childhood. I hear a lot of stories of addiction, and it was really trauma-induced. Um, mine is not like that. Not really. There's nothing major that happened to me that I think caused me to be this, you know, turmoil teenager or anything. I just think that I was predisposed to have issues. I always felt different when I was younger. You know, I don't know how to explain it. I just didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. Like, any room, group of people I was in, I always felt a little bit off. Um, and that I never felt like people understood me. And I had like weird quirks. I was a weird kid, like looking back on it. I had weird quirks and I just kind of beat to my own drum. Um, I didn't really care. I did start caring, you know, when I got older and I was like, I don't want to be that weird girl anymore. When I was younger, I don't think I cared. Um, but I did have these little tendencies that I think are kind of, you know, not alarming, but something to think about. And I know not, this is not like the indicator if your child does this, they're going to be an alcoholic. It's not like that. But for me, I think it was just some little things that carried on into the later stages of my life. But I, I was a collector. I liked to collect lots of things. I had boxes of things. I couldn't let things go. I liked shells like from lots of trips to the beach, and I couldn't throw away the shells. But that was kind of those early on, I think, that all-or-nothing mentality started creating at a young age. Like, I always was the most extreme or like not anything at all and that black and white thinking pattern started kind of growing at an early stage and i know my mom has a couple stories that i don't remember because you know i was like three years old and i think that can kind of go along to this yes i'll tell a little background for myself and then um reflect on her early childhood 
I grew up also in a very normal household. Um, great mom and dad who loved my brother and I. Um, grew up in the church. Um, got went to college. Got married. And when we moved to Indiana, uh, when we got married, we moved away, which was very good. Um, started our life together, and we started going to. Um, a very a non-denominational teaching that preaching kind of church and I really rededicated my life to Christ during that time I had become a Christian younger but I, I don't think I really ever had a relationship with God and so during that time I, I really became grounded in the word and spent a lot of time in Bible study we had a great community of faith and during that time I was challenged to come up with a life verse and so my life verse is Matthew 25, 23, um, and it's just God saying, thank you, uh, my good and faithful servant. And so I just felt like um, when I read that parable, I, just, I really put that on, on me. as, And I'm a, I'm a people pleaser by nature. Um, uh, strive to do the best you can, make really good grades, excelled in athletics, all of those things. And, and so I, I definitely am a people pleaser and that verse sort of fits my, you know, I want to make sure I'm pleasing God. And so when I became a mom, I, I think that mentality of where I was in my faith and, and just that people pleaser thing, I just went into momhood as just, this was it. This is what I was designed to be and maybe to a fault because you just, you know, you want to be the best mom so that you can have the best kids and that becomes an extension of yourself, I believe. In a lot of, it was good in a lot of ways because I was a good mom and conscientious and that kind of thing, but also very concerned about you know like how the world sees your children becomes a reflection of who who you are in Christ or who your identity is, um, and so that kind of that sort of pops up in several different places and in ways that we dealt with some situations with Hannah might have been more from a um, you know how you're going to reflect the Ellis name versus maybe what was actually best for her. Um, so when she was little and she talks about kind of feeling off, I like I, I distinctly remember two different birthday parties at the church that we belonged to at the time. And, and one of the parties, she was real hyper and super silly. Or, and I was like, why is she acting like that? You know, this is just three or four. And then another party not long after that, there was a lot of spring birthdays that that little gray to girls. And, she was just so like withdrawn and I just remember thinking you know that's just odd like that she just had some different behaviors as far as that that goes I didn't know how to fix that I didn't know that I really did anything with it but you know when she talks about not fitting in that that was sort of the beginnings of that I'll move kind of progress we're not going to talk about my childhood for a whole hour <laughs> so I'll move forward a little bit to where things well, so it was good, I think, before it was bad, and I hear a lot of people say that, but I didn't really see trouble happening until I was a freshman in high school, and so up until that point, I really, I don't know, I, I was fine. I remember in middle school kind of starting to feel like some probably what I didn't know then was anxiety, figuring out how to fit in, but I just kind of thought everyone dealt with that, and I know to an extent all adolescent kids do deal with that. But I think mine was a little bit more hypervigilant in comparison to probably the average kid. And I think I wanted to play this role of a certain person to I don't know, make myself happy, I guess. And so I decided when I was going to high school, I was going to be in like the drinking kids group. Like that's what I wanted. I remember like we I was having a conversation with two of my friends in middle school. And we had like heard of some high schoolers who drank. And the, my two friends were like, oh God, I would never do that. And um, let y'all know, I did not start hanging out with them anymore after that day. Because <laughs> I knew, like, that's not, this isn't the crowd I want to be in. I want to be in the cool kids crowd, you know. And so I did, I think, um, I wish I could say, you know, I was like peer pressured. It was none of that. I sought out the things to do to, I guess, live that life. And I had a couple friends that were on that same path as well. So uh, my first couple times getting into the whole drinking it wasn't at a big party or anything. It was actually the very first time I was at my parents' house and my friend and I stole like liquor, but it was like, you know, little teeny tiny shots so they wouldn't notice. And my parents don't drink that much, so it wasn't a lot to choose from. So I was having to like just take a little bit from each one. 
funny, I spilled some on the carpet. I had a carpet in my room. And I, this is, I'll say this, this is just a vulnerable thing to say. I literally sucked the juice out of the carpet because I didn't want it to lose a single ounce of the alcohol that I was going to consume. And I probably didn't get like, super drunk, but I did probably get what would be considered tipsy, I guess. And I remember just feeling crazy and I loved it. And I always, that, those feelings that I had in, in middle school, I guess it was like kind of these thoughts, right? Like just these constant thoughts about being a certain way, things about yourself, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. And those thoughts kind of just quieted a little bit for me that night. And I remember thinking that's what I'm trying to seek is like something to quiet those thoughts. A little bit forward, I realized that that was, that was like the beginning of my addiction because most people didn't, I didn't know this, but most people just drank because it was fun, not because it helped them feel better about themselves and quiet the thoughts inside their brain. Um, and so that was kind of an indicator for me that later on I was like, okay, there's something up there. Um, and really it didn't, it wasn't like all the time. I, I really was good at living this double life. I went to church on Sunday and Wednesday. I played soccer. I did all these things and I would have these couple little, like every couple months I'd, I'd get away with some friends and we would go do something like drink or whatever. And then um, I tore my ACL that same semester and that was um, really hard for me. That was a rough time in my life. And I, I, that was right after I had drinking a couple times. That happened like right after. And I remember really during this stage being just angry with God because I felt like he took away the one thing for me that was kind of keeping me afloat and on track. Like I felt like the, uh, the athletic part of me was the thing that was keeping me from doing all the bad things constantly. So I was confused around that time. I didn't really know what God's purpose was, um, but I knew it was him too. Like I have this whole story within itself, but there were some God things that happened around that time where I knew he was trying to speak to me. But I know it was hard for my parents too around that time because I probably wasn't the most enjoyable child that year. I think I was not a super happy person. Yeah, so well, I remember the day she tore her ACL, and I remember thinking, this is going to change her life. She was on track to probably, you know, do a lot of really great things with soccer. Some clubs from different cities were calling us. She, you know, she's just playing really well. She started as a freshman on the high school soccer team, and um, so things were going really well in that area. And I think a little pride there, you know, we're, we're superstar soccer girl. She's a very overachiever in school. Um, and uh, when she tore her ACL, I knew, and I just kept saying, she kept saying, it's torn. I'm like, we don't know that yet. All we know, because we were not even in Tupelo. We were in Jackson, and, and we were down there with the team, and um, we really didn't get to see a doctor for a few days. And um, she's like, I know it's torn. And I'm like, we don't know that, you know, we don't know that yet. Um, but I mean, I remember being with her and being really strong and I remember going behind the stands just falling apart. But I knew in that moment that it, it, that would be a life-changing thing for her. And it was yeah. <laughs> for that time. It was, it was a dark time um, and it, you know, it was a hard when you, you're athletic and you like to run and you like to stay in shape and all that kind of stuff and you can't do anything for, you know, several months. It's, it's tough. Yeah, and I'm a mover. Like I, I don't stay still. I just that's not even when I'm not doing sports. I'm constantly involving myself in things that move. So I had to stay still during that time. Um, and the biggest thing for me is I felt like I was progressing very well in my sports. And anybody you know who goes through any injuries knows never be the same. I never played the same, and I always had fear too when I stepped on the field of something happening to me again and that held me back so I I still had chances of playing college soccer but that was really the thing that set me back after high school it was over for me for me I had to kind of rethink my life because everything was around soccer for the majority of my life and then when that was taken away from me I had to reconsider exactly what was what was going moving forward and I don't think I really did that at all so I went back to that thing that made me feel good. And I did it for a little while. I was in like, I guess, a high school relationship where I just didn't do anything when we were together. And then when we broke up, I had lost all of these things in my life. And so I just immediately resorted to that thing that made me happy, which was alcohol. 
And from that point forward, it was just an up and down roller coaster for a couple of years. And I never really thought I was an alcoholic. That never crossed my mind. And I think mainly because films typically portray an alcoholic as like this old man who's like, you know, the town drunk or whatever. And I'm like, I don't drink every day. That was the thing that I always told myself is like, I don't drink every day. I only drink like every couple of weeks or whatever. And so I'm not an alcoholic. And I felt like my parents really thought I was an alcoholic or something. They knew something wasn't right, which made me even more mad and more rebellious. And I, so I really fell in this role of like trying to find any moment that I could to do this thing. And I, I played this whole part. I got, I mean, it was just awful. And I never had, like, I never really enjoyed drinking. I will say that. I know that sounds weird. But I never could drink the amount that, like, someone does to enjoy. I always went one more step over where I was the person that was throwing up and, you know, everything from A to Z. And I would never remember any of that. I'd wake up, blacked out, completely had no idea what happened. I would say, I'm never going to drink again. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And then, like, two or three weeks later, I'd get the opportunity, and I couldn't say no, so I would do it again. And that was kind of the cycle. And it was really a cycle with my parents, too, because I would get in trouble. And then I would, like, try and be good for a couple weeks and do what I was supposed to do to get on my parents' good side. And then I felt like I was screwed again, and then I'd get caught. Um, but I bet it wasn't as fun for them. Not as <laughs> Not fun. <laughs> We did not know that she had ever drank till her junior year in high school. Um, and we discovered that through different ways. But each of the three times that that happened in the, her junior year, each event escalated. The third time that we discovered that she had drank a lot, it was a very bad night. And she was brought home, and we debated whether to let her go. And, and, and I will say, as parents, it's so hard to know what to do. Um, Greg and I talked talked about it, and I mean, I remember him saying she has to learn how to be around people, you know. And so he kind of was like, she says she's not going to do anything. We're going to trust her because she had been on lockdown for a really long time at that point, and she had worked off a list. Like we tried different things. We grounded. Then we had like a list that she had to work off of. And I do remember her, I shared it in her notes and she shared it with some of her friends. And so then it became a thing at the high school. You worked your list off, you know, and so then she kind of like went in a hole for that. Like she didn't do the things to get off the list. I thought I was like, okay, let me help you with that. And so we got through that. And so she was ungrounded and um, for a, a few weeks. And then she asked to go somewhere and it was with a different group of friends, you know, and so we let her go, and she was brought home that night, not in a very good state at all. And it was a very scary, scary night. Um, I pretty much sat in there and, you know, made sure she was okay or whatever. But I, that night, I knew it was one of those kind of gut feelings. It was, it was uh, I just knew something was wrong. Like, like, And it wasn't even so much like a distrust. How could you do this against our trust? It really wasn't that. I just felt sorry for her in a lot of ways because I just thought she just, there's some reason that she can't fix this or can't, I, I don't know, I can't even put into words. Um, but one of the things we did in reaction to that event was we did have her go talk to um, an addiction minister that's in Tupelo. And she, I think she went with her brother and they went together. <laughs> um, she came home and she's like, well, he thinks I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I'm 16, and that's just ridiculous. And he wants me to have a sponsor. And that girl was on drugs, and I've never done drugs. And I, I mean, I'm fine, you know. And we'd say, "Do you need? Do you need to go to rehab? You know, rehab?" And she'd be like, I'm, "It's not that bad. I just, I just had a bad night." You know, she would really downplay it. And, but I did know that night that that something was more wrong than than normal just drinking behavior. Um, I do remember calling a friend that was, is a very close friend, she's in the train, <laughs> and just kind of saying that, and, and uh, you know, and, and nobody knows what to say to that, like, and, and so we had a conversation, and, and we kind of came to the conclusion, it's just teen, girl, teenage behavior, you know, but it, it was not. And I thought it was, I, I felt like, I think, that I was restricted of doing, of being the full of my potential as a person who can drink. Because I did have friends that their parents didn't care at all what they did. And I was like, well, they don't 
get blacked out drunk every time they drink. So it must be because my parents, you know, they're strict and they don't want me to drink every weekend. That was why. So my senior year, though, we'll kind of fast forward a little bit, was uh, it was more so it wasn't as bad in my drinking. I still had moments, but I was getting a little bit better at hiding them. I got a little bit better at the whole manipulation game. And in general, I wasn't drinking, I don't think, as much as I was my junior year and to the extent, but I was getting into a, a darker hole when it came to kind of like my mental health problems. And um, so mom took me to, to talk to someone about that. And I did get on medication that year for that. And, you know, I, that was kind of the beginning of me facing reality and that I had something else going on with me beyond just high school teenage problems and I think that was a, a hard year for them not really with my drinking because I feel like that year my parents didn't really know where I was mentally I, I feel like y'all are also kind of worried for me to go to college a little bit I was ready but I think they were like is she ready for this next part of her life because I did think that maybe some of the way that I was I was very I like kind of shut myself off that year and I only really hung out with like one or two people who kind of fed into that shutting off behavior. But, I mean, what do you think, Mom? Yeah, so I, I definitely, there was a lot of just staying in my room. I'm just really tired. I have a lot of homework and sort of a kind of cutting herself off from the family because that had not really happened before her senior year. A friend of mine called me and said that hey and I had talked to some of the girls on her soccer team and that some of the girls were a little concerned about some of her comments and that they were very dark, and I'm not going to go into everything that was said with that. It was very alarming. My husband worked out of town a lot, so I, I was a single mom from, I'm not really a single mom, but I, I functioned as a single mom a lot, and I called him, and I was like, something, something's wrong. This person has called me, their daughter's concerned, you know, and, and people don't do that unless it's a real concern, and he was like, you have to get to the bottom of that and just talk to Hannah about it. And he's like, surely that's just, you know, and I think even though we knew, we didn't want to know if that makes sense. So we spent a lot of time um, believing some of the manipulation so that we wouldn't have to face the fact that there was some mental health issues. I don't know much about mental I mean, I've never dealt with anxiety or depression. Um, my family is sort of a put your big girl panties on and move on, and we just didn't talk a lot about that. To face that, and it was very hard. And so I did talk to her, um, and when Greg got home, he talked to her, and she convinced us that, that she just made some comments, and they were taken out of context, and there was no mental health you know, crisis. But there probably was in that moment. But that was the first kind of thoughts that maybe the depression and anxiety would lead to maybe some self-harm and things like that. Yeah. So I'll progress a little bit because high school within itself can be its own story, as y'all can see. So I really, at this point, I think in my life, I really thought college was going to fix everything for me. I thought everything was because of high school. And I think near the end of my high school year, I just hated being in high school. Like, I know everyone goes through that, but I hated being in high school. I was so ready to get out. And then I went, so I was like, everything's going to change. I'm going to have this freedom. I'm not going to have to, you know, check in with my parents every single night. I'm not going to have to, like, hide my phone in mailboxes anymore so they think I'm at a certain house. Like, I don't want to do any of that. I'm just going to be on college, and it's going to be great, and everything's going to be fixed. And I, horrible. It was horrible. My first year of college was awful. I kind of had these high expectations. And then when you go to a big campus, where there's nobody who knows you, your professors don't know your name, and you go from from everybody knowing you to nobody knowing you, it's not fun at first. And um, I was in a long-distance relationship at first, and so then I wasn't really, I was either trying to spend weekends with him, and I wasn't really, like, hanging out with people, like, trying to get to know people, be a part of organizations. I didn't rush, so I didn't have any of that life that all my other friends were having. And I was like, all of, and I didn't know anybody except for my roommate and, like, people that I knew from Tupelo that were there. Um, and so when we broke up, I decided that I was going to get to know people, and I did the same thing. I went and found people who were doing stuff. And this time, I didn't have, 
as some of y'all know, you get randomly drug tested in high school if you're an athlete, which I'm just letting y'all know I never got drug tested. So if I would have known that now, then I think I would have probably done more stuff in high school. But I always had that on my back. Like, oh, is that person going to walk in and drug test me? So when I had that freedom in college, I... And I'll tell y'all this, I never was one to turn down drugs. I think I'm just going to be honest and lay it all out with y'all. Like, I never just, that was never, um, people talk about, oh, this drug makes me nervous and I'm never going to do this one. I never had those never drugs. Like, I was like, if it presents its opportunity, why not, you know? And so that was kind of the mindset I was in. And I will mention this, kind of didn't mention it. I'm trying to remember to bring God back into this. So in high school, I'd never really had that guilt, I think, that was really laid on like that God feel, I guess, is like what you can consider it. Didn't blame it on myself. I blamed it on my environment. But I think when I got to college, I did start blaming it on myself. Like there's not anyone breathing down my shoulder or this or that. So these decisions are me. Um, and so I really separated myself from God. I did not go to church. I did not pray. I did not do anything. And it wasn't that I went from this point of not believing in him. It's that I didn't want him to be in my mind because I knew that 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 guilt would come across and I would feel bad. And so the best thing I could do is just cut it out completely. And I think I've described it as like a relationship. Like I just broke up with him for a couple years and just completely put him on the back burner because I didn't want that guilt. And it kind of gave me this freedom to do whatever I wanted. And, um, and it wasn't fun all the time, but I will admit that I did have a lot of fun when I finally just started hanging out with a lot of people and doing the things that I wasn't supposed to do. But there are also a lot of dark times within those moments as well. And so when you see college students like having a grand old time, it's not always the case on what's going on internally. And that was the case for me. I'm sure if you saw pictures of me, oh, she's just thriving in college, but that was not it. I had horrible grades. I didn't like, I didn't like classes. I really enjoyed school when I was in high school. That was one thing. Did not enjoy college at all. It was not fun. I started off as an engineer major. Don't ask me why. And it was horrible. Like all my classes were so hard. It was all like white men that were like, just not even at the same level as me of under like it's awful. And so I major bounced a lot before I figured out what I wanted to do. But in that phase, I did not have good grades. I just didn't thrive really at first. And near the end of that year, I know my parents, like, I would come home some. I really did not come home a lot my freshman year until the end. That is a little bit of a time-consuming piece, so I will let my mom kind of reflect a little bit on that first phase of my college development. So we did know, you know, when she went to college, I would say the best way to describe it is that she just had to put a wall up, and I felt like we kind of had fake Hannah that year, and... um we did, it came to our attention that she was smoking marijuana. We did not know about anything else for a while, probably another year, six months to a year. But we just knew that her, her personality had changed. And that's just the best way I can describe it. It was just, she was not argumentative or rude or anything like that. It was just like we were getting a little piece of her, a little bit of a surface piece to her. And when she says I was smoking marijuana, it wasn't like I did it every, I smoked weed every single day in college, like every single day, three to five times a day. It was not, and I was working a job um, where, you know, my school was paid for that first year. So all the money for my job just went to drugs because I got, you know, food and everything. So I had no money to really show for me for all the hours I was putting in at work. But then I was able to hold my job. So in my head, I felt like, Oh, I'm still able to maintain a decent GPA and I have this job, so I'm functioning, sort of. I think I'm fine. Um, when I was, yeah, let me say something to that too. Like the red flags that you hear about, she did not have, you know, straight A's like she did in high school, but she also didn't have terrible grades. Yeah. I mean, her freshman year, her easiest class was calculus one semester. She's really taken high level classes. She worked 30 hours a week, never missed a a shift, I mean, at the coffee house at 4.30 in the morning. And so we we didn't think on those things, the big red flags that you might experience, you never ended up in the hospital or anything, you know, there was no, there was not a big red flag, but there was just sort of an uneasiness on our part. Nearing the end of that semester, I had gone through some trauma 
I think when you're just involved in all kinds of stuff, you're just going to face trauma. So I dealt with sexual trauma, you know, anything that you can really think of when it comes to being around men when you're just not of sound mind. Day after day, things are going to happen to you. And I think it kind of built, built up with inside myself, and I got to a breaking point with it. And it was just a Monday. I had just gotten back from school for the semester. I was working at the Tupelo Strange Brew. I just moved locations. And, and so I, I don't know. I just got off and I just did not feel good. And what I later figured out was um, everything from this point to the moment I got sober, it was my decision. I'm going to say that beforehand. But what I didn't know was also happening is I was going through a PTSD response where I was dealing with this trauma and I didn't know how to deal with it. So two things either happen to women is they either kind of become very like provocative, promiscuous, drink and do drugs and all this stuff. They go on that cycle or they go in the opposite cycle where they're shut down. Well, I'd really only known about like the women who like don't want to be touched and shut down. I didn't know about this other side. So I didn't think that's what was happening to me. And I really didn't know what was wrong with me. But all I knew is that I just didn't ever want to be sober. That was really the feeling that I got. So I um, just drank myself to death that day almost. And I was driving. I actually can't even really share this story as much as my mom because I don't remember really any of this day. I was just what I can comprehend as I got in my car. My friend, he was even like, do not drive. And if that, if, if y'all know this person, y'all would know, oh my gosh, like you were not okay. Cause he did not care about my well-being for the majority of the time. But even him, he said, do not drive. You're not okay to drive. So, but I did anyways, which that wasn't a good enough friend to make me stop driving. He felt like he did his part, but um, I drove. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital and everything from that moment to that moment, I have no recollection of completely blacked out. I just was, the main thing I was scared of is I thought I hurt someone. That was the first thing. When I realized I was the only person in the wreck, I did feel some relief. But I will tell y'all, I really did think I died that night, like for a split second. And I kind of came to peace with it within myself. I can't really explain it. So when I woke up in the hospital, which it kind of matches what my mom will say, I was kind of disappointed. Like I didn't really want to like have to deal with what was about to happen next in my life. So I was kind of mad and angry that I didn't die. I thought it was really like my moment to go. It's kind of hard to explain, but um, I'm gonna let my mom talk about her perspective because her perspective is a lot different than mine. Yeah, so we were at the house and her brother called her to see if she's coming home for dinner. It's her first full day back from college and um, calls her phone and a paramedic answers and says, we have, we have her in an ambulance and we're heading to Tupelo. Greg and I got in the car. Her brother would not come to the hospital, and um, we were mad. And you know, we were like, "This, this is something. She's off doing something she shouldn't have been doing." Um, and we got to the hospital. and We had to wait a little while, and we just, uh, I was scared, but we were, we were mad. And we got back there, and they called us back. She, she'd been brought back, and I had expected her to be okay because the paramedic was like well she she kind of keeps saying she's okay but we're going to bring her to the hospital anyway and so i didn't know what to expect i walk in and there's a huge bump on her head and some dried blood in some different places and um, she's eaten up with like bugs i don't know how long she was in the car before someone found her um and she was laying there and she wasn't like sobbing hysterically but she was just laying there she had a neck brace on and just tears were streaming down her side of her face and she just kept saying over and over i just pretend to be happy so i at that moment you know we don't know if it was a suicide attempt or what but it was definitely a risky behavior definitely a, i don't care about my life behavior and so we were not anymore at all at her um both my husband and i broke in that moment um and just knew she needed a lot of help and i think that was the one moment we were like this this is so much more than just being rebellious um and so uh the preacher from the church came and some of our friends came and we got her home and so we had her all summer this was in the beginning of may and we had her till august and so we got her counseling 
um, several times a week. We did not get her a car. She had to walk everywhere, hitch a ride. <laughs> At that time, we lived real close to where she was going to work, and so she just walked to work. And we really thought she was getting better that summer, but we, we did. We felt really sorry for her and had a lot of compassion for her instead of anger at that point because we were, we were very concerned. During that summer for me, I was just constantly trying to show my parents that I was okay. But on the side that they didn't see, that was probably the most I was doing when it came to drugs and alcohol. And I had just really gotten involved with people who were just way ahead of what I was used to. So, you know, the drugs that they were doing, the types of everything that they were doing was, but I wanted to seem like I was, I could do all of that. So I did, I just jumped right into it. Um, and I will say cocaine was my favorite at that time in my life. I really had fallen in love with any like upper stimulant, Adderall, cocaine and all that was, but, but it kind of is a trickster because it does get you motivated. So I was able to show up to work and seem like seem somewhat sober for the most part so it's, it's a, i call it a hidden drug a lot of times because you don't always see how much it's affecting someone it's not like xanax which i also did but i didn't do that a lot which you just you know become a zombie it has kind of the opposite effect of that if y'all aren't familiar with the drug so i and I, you fall into like a completely different personality so i was really good at lying but not really a great liar either i'll tell y'all so that tells me anything like i was really good at manipulating the line and putting this persona on not getting caught and doing better. But I wasn't at all. I was not doing well at all. And I just like kind of created a fog over my head. And I was almost just in constant autopilot. I woke up, I asked myself, did I have any drugs? If I didn't have any drugs, I went and found them or I went and worked, used that tip money to go get drugs. And then I would go to sleep and it was a cycle. And I didn't care who got in the way of me accomplishing those goals or what had to happen to make sure I continue this path, but that's what I just kept doing every single day. I would lie and lie and lie and lie um, to get what I wanted. And that was pretty much the whole summer. I can go so in great detail, but I'm not going to, because you can kind of see that picture painted. And I really thought I had it together. Really did. I really did. I was like, I figured this out, figured out how to be a functioning drug addict. And that was how I was going to live my life for like the rest of my life. I just knew that that was it. So I went back to school. And I wanted to go like as soon as possible. I was going to have my own apartment. I was in the district. Y'all aren't familiar with Starkville. It's a really cool area. Like everybody parties. I was just so excited. So I went before I even had my furniture. I like called my friends. I was like, I got my apartment like a day early. Let's go tonight to Starkville. And um, so we did. And I did what? I did a drug, Xanax, which if y'all aren't familiar with that drug, you just it's horrible. I hate it. But um, it helps some people, I guess, if they take it very mildly. But I did not take it mildly. And um, I don't remember anything from that night, honestly. And the stories that people told me, it's funny. It is a funny night for other people because I was a girl who just was, you know, paint a picture for you. But um, it wasn't funny the next morning when I ended up in jail. Um, so that was um, not a fun night for me because I was like, my parents already didn't want me to go to college that ready that night. And so they were coming to bring my furniture. They haven't even brought my furniture yet. And I was trying to figure out how to get bailed out of jail before my parents got to Starkville. And none of my friends had money. So that was the hardest thing. Nobody had money. I had like four friends who were like, I'm going to bail you out. They showed up. They didn't have enough money. So I, my friend was like, I have to call her mom. Like, I just I have nothing else to do. None of us have enough money to get you out of jail. And so that, for my parents, it was not compassionate. There's a lot of anger that day. It's not this feel sorry for Hannah. It was a lot worse than that. It was not, it was not the hospital night for me. <laughs> no. We decided to purchase her a car. I mean, she's working and she's in school off campus. We got the car on Friday. She goes down Saturday. She's in jail by Sunday. And so all trust was broken. I will say that was the worst day of our life, I think. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, in both situations, though, even though they're both terrible, God showed up in both of those situations. He saved her life, the first one. And in the first one, she had the car wreck. She should have gotten arrested, and she did not. But this time she did, and it, that saved her life in a lot of ways. Um, but, no, we did not. Like, we bailed her out, 
and made her walk from the jail to her apartment in the 102 degree heat. <laughs> and we were just like at a loss. And Greg and I would talk, what are we going to do? We're going to take her back. We're going to take the car. We're we not going to take the car. And so we would unload, we would unload, and then we would yell, and then we would unload, and then we would yell, and then we'd go pick up the furniture and come back and we would yell. And um, it, it was a very hard day. We went back and forth between leaving her there, not leaving her there. Um, and Greg, in, in his wisdom, he handles things from the head sometimes when I'm at the heart. <laughs> and um, he, we finally landed on, she's got to figure this out. And so we left her that day. And we said, you have a semester to get your life together. You are not who God created you to be. This is, you are some other kind of person. We did not raise you to act like this. And, you know, we love you and we will always love you. But, you know, if you don't get it together this semester, you'll be on your own and we will completely cut you off financially. And, and we left her there that night. And, and I will say that was one of the hardest things. I don't, I don't think I cried during that day in front of her, but I got in the car and just fell apart. And, and all of this is not easy on a marriage either. And Greg said, why are you crying? He's, he's still mad. I'm like, we're just full. I don't know. And now, I, I mean, I, all kinds of thoughts went through my head. I knew her mental health had not been great. I knew that all of that summer was all a manipulation. And so, I mean, I worried about her safety that night. I didn't know if she would survive the night. Um, but she did. She survived the night. I know we're kind of getting close to time, so I want to try and push more to kind of what led me to to finding sobriety. And uh, and then my mom will kind of talk about some cool things that happened with her. But I call these, um, we were talking about it on the way over here, and I was like, so I'm, I had my undergrad in psychology, and I'm currently in my master's for clinical mental health counseling. So I still am one of science when it comes down to things. Um, so one thing that you do when you do research is that when you're trying to find something that you can generalize to a population, you have about 5% of what you call chance. And then if anything is over that 5%, then it's not chance anymore. It's, it's something bigger. Um, and I think that that showed in my life that there were these things that were happening back to back that were, it was God, because if it, it was more than 5% of my life that was getting pushed at me. Um, and the first thing was when I got in my wreck, I should have gone to jail. I did not. I actually had no charges against me. Um, that was not luck. That was someone else. That cop even talked to my mom and felt like led to do what he did for me. And so that happened. And at first I was mad about going to jail, but it led me to have this choice of going on probation and having to get drug tested to get everything expunged. So that was God, because I would not be sitting here in front of y'all today if I didn't get on probation, because I had to figure out how I was going to pass a drug test. That was like my main goal, how I'm going to do that. Um, and during that time, someone got introduced into my life, and he's a part of the collegiate recovery community on campus at Mississippi State. And I didn't even know about this place. It was actually right across from the hall that, like, the dorm I lived in. Never even heard of it. So it was kind of crazy. Like, it just randomly just came in my life right when I needed it. So I ultimately reached out to him and told him everything that happened to me. I never, even with all my therapists, I held that. I never told them everything. Because I think I knew they'd be like, okay, there's something seriously wrong with you. Like, you don't, you need to be like in treatment or something. You don't need to be sitting here talking to me once a week. And so I knew that how to play the game with the therapist, I guess. But when I got to him, it's like I just kind of, I was at my, um, my breaking point. And I knew that this was the moment where it's like, I call it rock bottom, but it wasn't rock bottom in one way. It was physically, spiritually, emotionally, immensely rock bottom. I was at a point in my life where I didn't care what I had to do because I was so miserable. I didn't even have fun doing drugs. It was a necessity. If I didn't do them, I'd have withdrawals. And if I did them, I just would get through the day. It wasn't like fun anymore. It was just this thing that I had to do to survive. And I couldn't figure out how to do that, not anymore. And and get this expunged off my record. So anyways, that night I went to an AA meeting and I was October 3rd of 2018. I picked up a white chip and it's, it's an, I'm going to try not to cry, but that was an emotional night for me because it was the first time that I did something on my own. Everything up to that point was for my parents or for, to prove a point, like just trying to show them I'm doing better. But I, my parents did not ask me to go to that meeting. I sought that out and I, 
I did it because I wanted to get better. And then my mom actually kind of has some neat things I learned that kind of led her up to that point that night with, with me and that God was really playing in her life as well. Yeah, so during, during those couple months between the arrest and October, when the court, you know, that was close to when her court date was, um, I was very desperate, um, a lot, listening to praise music a lot. Um, but I do remember that I had a, um, a moment, a spiritual experience. Um, and there are times in my life, in a lot of different situations, where I feel like God kind of, you know, has broken into the realm of the world for me. I was on a walk. I was just walking. I had a little route that I walked around by our house. And that was back in the Pandora days where you listened to a station and you didn't plan the songs, but I was listening to a worship station. And one of my favorite songs is Chris Tomlin's rendition of Amazing Grace. And he has sort of like these extra choruses. And, and um, one of the phrases in there is, I wrote it down, are, my chains are gone, I've been set free. And I just remember just praying that for Hannah. I just, that's it. She just needs to be set free. And I need to be set free. And our family needs to be set free from this. And during the course of that walk, which is, it's just interesting, but but it's God, that song came on three different times. And by the end of that walk, I, I could almost audibly hear God say, I'm going to set her free. I'm going to set her free. Just just wait. Um and, you know, how that was going to happen and how that played out ended up not being me at all. The person that she's talking about, the Collegiate Recovery Center, um, she tells me that she went in and told this guy, all, told him everything. And he just said, welcome to the family and um, asked her to go to a meeting. He, he told me later, he's like, I, I didn't think she was going to come back, you know, because, you know, you kind of went in there and said something about, well, I just need help. To, to stop for six months, and he's like, oh no, it's, it's, it's this, it's, you're an addict. So she went to that meeting that night, and she called me that night, so this would have probably been within a month or so of that experience, and she said, Mom, I, I went to an AA meeting tonight, and I picked up a white chip, and, and I'm going to live sober, and I said, oh, okay, for six months, because you know that's what the probation was, and she said, no, the rest of my life, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. And um, that was the first moment. That was the first turning point. And I think because of what she said, because she did it. Um, and that's the hardest part about being a parent of an addict is that there's nothing I could really do other than pray or, or release or, or whatever um, to fix it. I couldn't fix it. But she, she took it on upon herself. And just like everything she does, she does, um, whether it's using marijuana or <laughs> becoming um you know, uh, in recovery, she does everything she does at 150%, if that's even a thing. Um, but that was the first turning point for us, or for me, for sure, as a mom. And um, the last few minutes, we'll talk about the good stuff. Um, <laughs> and things were, I think my freedom and my mom's freedom was a little bit different. I broke that trust for a while. But so that was, that's her part to tell. But for me, I did find freedom right away. Um, not now. It wasn't like this. Just immediately, my life was one hundred percent better. It really wasn't the first year. It was not um, because my whole life I had been reinforced to to this thing, this drug or this drink, to make me feel better, and I didn't have that anymore. So at first, it actually felt like the opposite of freedom. Felt like I had the thing taken away from me, and I was locked away from it. Um, and so I had to find, but then I come to realize that it, it was, it had me on chains the whole time. Um, and that was a unique experience for me. I used to go to meetings and I will talk a little bit about AA, but I am going to mainly be emphasized on the God part of AA, but I used to go to meetings and people would say that they're grateful to be an alcoholic. And in the beginning I would hear that like, these people are crazy. Like, why would you want to live this way? Um, because you, and this is one of the first things my sponsor told me, the day I picked up that white chip, I have two decisions for the rest of my life. I can decide to live sober another day or I can relapse. And there's nothing in between. And um, and that really is how it is. You can't figure out how to drink normally. I tried. It did not work. <laughs> um, and that's that was the decision. So I, I knew my whole life had to change. And even if I wanted to start drinking again, I would have to relapse and like get away from this life. I could not live both those lives anymore. I committed to rigorous honesty. 
I was not going to lie anymore. That was my commitment in my AA um, and with my therapist. And there's two, there's 12 steps, if you haven't heard of them. Steps two and three are God-related. The step two is power, um, you basically give your power greater than yourselves. You believe your power greater than yourselves could restore you to sanity. And that is the first, basically just admitting that something other than yourself can restore you to sanity. It cannot be yourself. So in that moment, I had to accept that God was going to restore me to sanity. And then step three is the decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as we understood him. So yeah, there's actually a prayer you do with your sponsor, and you do this whole prayer, and it's literally asking God to turn your life over to him. Um, and those things were actually harder for me than you would think because a lot of people came in as atheists and agnostics, and I felt like I didn't struggle with that, so I didn't think I was going to have to struggle with this these other steps, but I did because I had completely broken up that relationship with God, I remember. So I had to rebuild that. Um, and it was not easy at first. Um, and then I, I will say this, I had lots of spiritual experiences from that moment forward um, where I just could just see God every day. And I think I just was closed off, right? I was not walking by faith. And I think when you do decide to walk by faith, you see almost everything around you is like a spiritual or God experience. And you just start looking at it. And that was so neat for me. So I did fall in love with that again. And I had a different relationship, too. It was completely different. It was one of, of where I wasn't having to hide anything. or It, it was just like this complete relationship. And I talked to God a lot more. And I still do way more than I used to. And it's not even like get on my knees and pray. It's just like this constant conversation and presence that I have with him that I never experienced. People talked about presence. I think even when I was young, and I just didn't really understand what that meant. And I think the first time you experience it, you fully understand, oh, that like literally means he's like right here, right now. And um, I had a lot of cool experiences like that my first year. And that was my freedom. And that was my healing. And I still heal every day. And I still do not have a perfect relationship. I'll go a year sometimes with not doing my constant prayers and meditation, et cetera. Um, and, and that's a, what people call it like an emotional sobriety slip. So even though I'm not drinking, I'm still not following the steps and, and that emotional sobriety piece. Um, and then my mom will talk a little bit about, about her healing during this time, and then we'll wrap up. Yes. As she mentioned, the 12 steps, um, one of the 12 steps is to make amends. She came to us several months into her uh, sobriety, and um, I think we were in a trust but verify kind of time. Um, I remember we gave her no money during that time, but if she sent me a grocery list, it would be at the pickup at the Walmart for her because um, I knew where the money was going to. Um, but I did, I trusted, but I didn't fully trust. She came home one weekend and she said, I need to talk to you and Dad. And um, we said, okay. And she sat down and she said, "It's I'm going through my list of amends and it, and it and it takes a long time. It's not like you say, okay, I'm punching them out in a week, you know. Um, so that was, and I've learned a lot about recovery life through this. And she said, but I, I cannot sit here and tell you everything I'm sorry for. And I can't make a list of amends and tell you everything I'm sorry for. But I, what I want to do is make my life a living amends to you all. And she said, from this point forward, how I live my life will be an amends for what has happened. And in that moment is when my freedom happened. I have never looked back after that moment. I have never not trusted and I have never not believed that um, she was who she was, that she was telling us the truth. And, and our relationship completely changed at, from that point forward because I didn't have to worry. I, I quit worrying. I don't worry about her. I'm just proud of her. <laughs> um, and and it, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard place to be in when you're so worried about your child that you can't sleep at night. Um, you know, that it's just, it's, it's there. It's in the back of your brain a lot. Um, and then it was gone. And so, it, you know, in so many ways, those chains were set free for both of us. Um, you know, I read The Prodigal Son a good bit during that time. And verse 15, 24, you know, the, the father, which was mom and dad in this situation, um, they partied. <laughs> they had a party because um, the son was dead and now he's alive. And um, 
he was lost and now he's found. And I feel like that is, that is exactly it. The wall is gone from her. Um, our conversations, we're, we're able to talk about just about anything, maybe everything. And, you know, and it's a different time in our life where I can, you know, you go from being a mom and a parent and a role maker to, to a friend. And we're definitely in a friend phase. Um, but I can trust her. And we just have loved seeing the young lady that she's grown into over the last four years. And I'm just extremely proud of her. I do. I want to end with one thing before questions. Yeah. So there's, um, it's called Nine Step Promises. It's basically, which my mom was talking about amends, that's the ninth step. So there's like this thing that after you finish your amends, you're supposed to have this like relief in recovery. And I'm just going to read it to you. Um, and I want you to really think about this because all of these things came true for me. And they say it, that it happens. If you work the steps and you believe in a power greater than yourselves, and these promises will come true. And they 100% did for me. But the promises are, if we are painstaking about this phase of our de development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale has gone, we will see how our experiences can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Our self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Free of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. We will. They are being fulfilled. And um, that's said at every single AA meeting, if any of y'all have ever been. But I used to hear that in early on, and I was like, there's no way that those things could come true for me. But standing here in front of y'all today, they have 100% come true for me. You know, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, it was just such a unique story that we were given as they were kind of ping-ponging off each other of what they were walking through, how powerful that was to hear it from those different perspectives. Mm -hmm. You know, we have so many requests for stories on addiction. We all know, you all know as listeners, how prevalent this is in our world we live in. And to be able to hear in such great detail both perspectives, I was hanging on every word, mm -hmm. just thinking how I can encourage others sharing the story with friends. It really spoke to me. My heart as a mom just went out to Celeste and I, I just appreciated her transparency. Even even going back to her feeling that she was created as a people pleaser. You know, she said that that she gravitated to the verse, well done, my good and faithful mm. servant. And that she, you know, said as a mom, I was concerned about how my children were holding up the Ellis name. Oh, yeah. And and that was something that I could I could personally relate to and have been convicted about. Um, and so when she later talked about I just wanted to fix it as a mom. We've talked about that here in this room before <laughs> and how as parents, we want to fix things. We want to get out of ahead of our children. And often we want to get out ahead of God and right. what he's yeah. trying to do. But she just kept hitting her knees. Yeah. She kept hitting her knees. She, You talk, Robin, about worship music mm -hmm. and how impactful that can be. Chris Tomlin, My Chains Are Gone, that spoke to her. And so, you know, it was a great reminder just hit your knees, go to the Lord first mm -hmm. with your kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that part of the story really stood out to me when she was on that walk in the sweetness mm -hmm. of God to Celeste of saying, I've got this. I've got this. She's going to be set free. But, you know, you know, talking about this idea of free, being free and, and freedom, I thought it was interesting how Hannah just kept saying, you know, I just wanted to go to college because it's going to bring me freedom. And mm -hmm. it really just enslaved her more to her addiction and the freedom that she actually <laughs> needed. And, and, you know, that she talked about how her relationship with God was actually what ended up getting her through all of mm -hmm. this. For me... I loved how she said she went to college. That's a great point, Katie, because it's it's freedom in two different ways. She went to college and she broke up with God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, that was the most real picture of mm -hmm. going to college, breaking up with the Lord in relationship. Like maybe we'll get back together later when I'm more <laughs> serious. Mm -hmm. But right now I'm real not interested in being with you because how real. Yeah. It's not that she didn't believe in him. Mm -hmm. She just chose no thanks for a relationship right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And yet... God is so faithful to draw us back in and draw us back in, no matter the poor choices, no right. matter what we walk through. He, he's right there. You know, 
absolutely. I hate that the two of them had to walk through this, but wow, the power of their story and them telling it together. And I just am so thankful to both of them for being so vulnerable in sharing their story and the struggles that they both walked through mm-hmm. and the authenticity of their story as well just was powerful. We would be remiss if we didn't say, if you are struggling with addiction yeah. or someone in your family is and you need help, we have linked several resources in our show notes. And we would just encourage you first just to reach out to the Lord, um, but also find someone uh, that could talk to you from a professional standpoint. Thank you so much for listening. We know, again, like we said, that this is a topic that reaches almost every single one of us in some capacity. So if you found hope in this story or if you know someone that would, we would love for you to pass it along and bring someone else a story of hope. So thank you again for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.